Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The relationship between oak and wine runs deeper than we may think it does on the surface. Sure, many wines are fermented or aged in several species of oak, but oak is also used to transport wine in ships, and corks come from a particular species of oak tree. I think it's interesting how the wine world has such a direct tie to so many different species of oak. The tree genus Quercus, or oak, has over 600 species. Cork is made from the bark of the Quercus suber tree, and corks are a renewable product. Quercus suber trees can live up to 300 years, and the bark regrows every 10 years. A little more than a century ago, you may have gone to any European dock and found a boat made from Quercus suber or cork oak. Not the bark here, but the hardwood trunk under the bark. This was used in ships because it was resistant to rot. And this hypothetical ship may have been packed with barrels of Quercus rober, French oak, Quercus patria, Russian oak, all filled with wine. And the barrels may have been stopped with corks made from the Quercus super bark. Due to this complex interrelationship between Quercus forestry and beverage production, entire businesses have evolved around these trees. Cooperage is a centuries-old craft and the most obvious industry that evolved with wine production. Cork production is another industry that has been made possible by this species. Cork extraction machines emerged over the last several centuries to remove such corks, and in fact, in the mid-1800s, several beer and wine producers used cork screws as business cards. And the success of a few companies has been in part to their marketing on the handles of cork screws. More recently, oak has influenced our industry as companies have started to sell and manufacture oak chips, oak-derived additives, and oak-like extract substitutes to add to wine to create the illusion of oak aging. I wonder, how different would the classic format of wine, and by classic format I'm referring to the glass bottle plus cork combo, so glass bottle and corks, how different would this format be if Quercus genus and its multitude of oak species had evolved differently. If we had never had oak, we would never have corks. And would we ever have had a glass bottle format? And if the glass bottle format had evolved differently, would the idea of a crown cap or stealth enclosure even have been thought up? 
In the last decade or so, the backlash of heavy oak use in wines has been pretty extensive and global. And I hear a lot of sommeliers and winemakers talk about how this is over-oaked or that's over-oaked. But the next time you pull a cork or drink wine that was shipped in from overseas on a boat that most likely had some oak structure to it, pause for a moment and consider the pervasive value that this tree genus has had throughout the wine industry. It's driven our standard format, which for all its strengths and weaknesses has revolutionized the wine industry over the last couple centuries. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Stephen Henschke on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Thank you, Livy. Very well. Very nice to have you here. Thank you very much. So you're the fifth generation winemaker at Henschke. That's correct. And you have Silesian roots. Am I saying that right? Silesian? Silesian, yeah. And what does that mean? It means that the Luther, German Lutheran families that settled in the Barossa in South Australia came from a part of Germany, which is now where Poland is the western side of Poland, near the River Oder, so Frankfurt under Oder is there, Grunberg, in that sort of area. Um, and they came out to Australia because of religious persecution under the King Friedrich Wilhelm, Wilhelm III. Um, but they did have winemaking, some of them did have winemaking background there. So there was viticulture and winemaking in that part of Europe, even though it's that far east and north. So there are lots of jokes about the, the, the Silesian Rieslings burning holes in tables and things like that, but I'm sure it's not true. Well, it's, it's interesting because I know both your father and yourself at one point went back to Germany to study, mm. uh, your wife as well, mm-hmm. and uh, it felt like kind of completing a circle almost when you said that your dad in 1970 was awarded a fellowship to That's travel right. through Europe, including Germany. Correct. Absolutely. And how did that come about, and what were you doing at that time? Um, I was at university. Um, he, he applied for this, this Churchill Fellowship, which is a very Australian thing, um, which was a scholarship to study further uh, for people who hadn't had a tertiary education. And um, he was the first winemaker to apply and, and won the, the scholarship. Travelled extensively in 1970 around through America and, and um, Europe, and South Africa and came up back to Australia and wrote up his report. The really fascinating part was that he made connection with two so what I call luminaries in the industry at the time, Professor Bruno Goetz from Freiburg Wine Institute 
and Professor Dr. Helmut Becker from Geisenheim in Germany. And Becker was um, a famous geneticist. He was the head of the Geisenheim Wine School. And so he'd spent time with him. And Becker, sort of ironically almost, the, the opportunity came up in Australia to, for the, with the CSIRO to look at breeding Australian grape varieties. And one of those, that, and Becker was asked to be involved because of his genetic background. He's also a very funny guy um, and uh, used to love swearing in Australian, you know, bloody this and bloody that. Um, <clears throat> so he came out to Australia um, and because he'd, he had been, uh, had known my father, he want, wanted to come and visit, loved my father's wines and all that sort of thing. And one day when I was home from um, university, for dinner and Becker was there and, and we were talking and he asked me what, what I was going to do. And at that time um, I was thinking about going to Roseworthy College, which is an Australian wine school. And he said to me, no, no, come and study with me in Germany. And so that gave me the opportunity of, of going to Geisenheim. And because you know, there are a couple of things that come into play, but because Prue, Prue and I became good friends at university, and and um, and you know we were planning to get married sometime anyway. It made more sense to get married before we went to Germany because of the difficulties of renting flats. You know, this is back in the seventies. You have to remember um, when when you're not married, so it made sense to get married. So I said, well, why don't we get married and go to Germany and study over there? My, all I needed was my father's financial help, blessing, and off we went. And we, we had you know, just over two years in Germany, had a great time studying winemaking, viticulture. Prue worked with Becker in the, in the Institute. He was a vine breeding, vine grafting specialist, vine propagation. So she learned all those sorts of techniques, which drove her, her background was in botany, so it drove her into you know into more the botanical side of viticulture, and it was a fantastic grounding for her because of the the Germans were all about you know increasing improving the breed and all that sort of thing. So it gave her when it comes to vines, yeah, when, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make sure what we're talking about here, for you know, I get in trouble. Sure, but uh, so. She's there, and she also studied with Dr. Richard Smart at some point. She actually came back when, when after we came back in in um, late '77, she got a job at Roseworthy College as a technical research officer. So she was actually working with Dr. Richard Smart, Peter Dry, uh, Patrick Island, all those sorts of guys. And it was a really interesting time in Australia at at that time because. There was a lot of work being done on on um, site selection, which in Australia meant instead of just planting where you've inherited your land or whatever, you actually look at the topo topography, the climate across Australia. And if you want to plant cool climate varieties like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc or whatever, then you go looking for, for suitable you know, climates and soils. And so it was really a, a new thinking at that time in Australia. And that was great for us. That's quite stimulating. But the other side was also canopy management. And we'd studied in Germany, so we, you know, we, we're full bottle on this. But the, canop the exposure, the level of exposure you need with the canopy relates to the vigour of the vine, effectively. And Dick Smart, Peter, oh, Dr. Richard Smart, Dick Smart, wrote a book which was called Sunlight into Wine. And um, it sort of describes 
all that sort of process. So Prue was working with him at the time and it was really good stuff. Um, and because we had a lot of ideas that we picked up in Germany in those couple of years and, and also extensively travelling around Europe, we wanted to to road test them really um, preferably not in the old museum vineyards of Hilly Grace Mount Edelson because we didn't want to muck them up at all. We wanted to sort of make sure that we had the right the right um, ideas and plans to improve those vineyards. And so we ended up finding a, a suitable orchard, actually, as it turned out, up in the Adelaide Hills, which satisfied a couple of criteria because it, it was colder, wetter part of, of South Australia, which is ideal for apples and cherries and pears and things, but also ideal for cool climate grape varieties. So we bought that orchard for better or for worse. Um, Prue became an apple grower. And um, you know, my joke is she was you know, selling Granny Smith apples to the school kids in Adelaide. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was an interesting time because in apples production, they use a lot of sprays, a lot of insecticides, a lot of herbicides and all that sort of thing. And that, you know, that, that put on a red light for us. Um, and then when fortuitously, uh, as it may be, um, a huge wildfire came out of the, the forest, the, the, the Mount Crawford forest alongside of us in 1983. So these were the bushfires of, of, of South Australia back in 83 and it destroyed our vineyard and a couple other people's orchards and vineyards alongside of us or our potential vineyard, I should say, because we did have some rows of Chardonnay that we'd planted in a, a spare block and they, they survived. So it was a good omen. And we then pulled out the dead trees and started, you know, made a farm plan and started planting up with Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Riesling, Merlot and things like that. And that, that really gave us a chance because it's quite steep in the Adelaide Hills, quite steep country. Um, up to 30% slopes. So it gave us a chance to test not only canopy management, but soil management techniques and things like that. And they're the thing, they're the ideas then that we we tested there that we were able to slowly take back into the, the other Henschke Eden Valley vineyards. Also those more organic ideas that we'd, we'd come up with. Because I think it, it seems to be a thing when you start having children, that you start to think about what you put in your mouth. Um, when you're at university, it's not quite so important, but when you get a bit older, it is. And so just the thought of spraying, you know, these sorts of insecticides and herbicides in our vineyard and then eating the grapes wasn't something that, you know, just rang bell, alarm bells for us. It wasn't something we wanted to do. So we, we before organic was, was popular, we started working towards an organic regime in our vineyards. Um, but also the other area was from, you know, when we came back, we, we knew Europe well. We, you know, we knew the soils of Europe, all the varieties and things, but we didn't really understand our soils properly. And we wanted to get a better hold of, of what our soils were all about, you know, why these vines had lasted so long, try growing on root type vines. Because you had vines that dated back to the 1860s. And Absol some, yeah, some absolutely. Age. And so there, there were a couple of things that helped us. One was some work that a guy called Keith Northcott had done at CSIRO in, in Adelaide. Um, and it was, he had mapped the Mount Lofty Ranges, and the, all the soils, the climate, the rainfalls, temperatures and things. Um, and that was really useful. We are in the, in the um, Hutton Vale Soil Association, it's called. And there are effectively, 
if you look at the geology of, of South Australia, this was all, we're on a big tectonic plate. So Australia is a tectonic plate moving north from Gondwana land, from Antarctica. And there's a lot of erosion off the tectonic plate over millions and millions of years. And those seabed silts basically built up and sort of formed the bottom edge of, south, of the southern part of Australia. And then at some stage, something like 500 million years ago, uh, there was some almighty collision that formed this mountain range called the Mount Lofty Ranges. And so it's really seabeds pushed up into like a book. And as they weather down, you can, you can read the silts, the different ages of the silts up to your know, more or less modern day, which was the sea creatures on the top of the seabed that formed a limestone face right along the edge of the, the ranges. That's the background of the soil. So the soils are weathered silts and sea and, and um, metamorphosed silts and, and sandstones. And they're quite low in organic matter. They have some natural salinity built into them. And the, I guess the key was when we, when we realised that these were potentially sodic soils, low in organic matter, that we had to do something about that. And that organic sort of thinking helped along that process. So these days, carbon is a, is a bad word, seems to be a bad word, but really carbon's the most important element on the planet in terms of life. So in, in your vineyard, it's incredibly important to have higher organic carbon, which is humus and, and mulch to keep the, the vines healthy and keep the soil healthy. And so that was our process of looking at things to put in the vineyard to help balance the, the vineyard, rather than the, the sort of modern way of just putting fertilizers on the ground, um, which tend to poison the soil more than, than anything else, or acidify the soil at least. So that was a process, the direction we went. And um, through up to about seven years ago, then Pro got into more into the biodynamic side of it. And from in the process of biodynamics, um, it was really for her, it was about making good quality compost to put in the vineyard and using all of our waste products. Um, so by incorporating um, with our waste stream of skins and seeds from the winery, but also incorporating in straw mulch, green waste, um, some lime, cow manure, um, into big biscuits um, with a, you know, maybe... Not the couple, kind you eat, but... The, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a couple hundred tonne of grape mark, you know, sort of building into these huge big biscuits that compost it down. Um, but by learning about the biodynamics that, um, she found that by putting these these preps, like the 500 preps, into the compost heap, it gave a much better compost, and you could just see the fungi growing through the all the um, the compost and just forming this this really amazing quality compost. You know, she measured the temperatures. She you know was like a doctor following all this sort of stuff, and then we put that out in the vineyard, and, and so that that process is important because in Instead of using, as the, the common practice in Australia was to what I call a dead earth policy. It was to spray out the grass under the rows of vines, occasionally plant things in the row, but always rotary hoe them in so they kill them off so it was bare during the summer. And the way we were working was to use a, a straw mulch under the vines, which basically then is like a blanket. So it keeps the vines cooler, the vine roots cooler in the hot summer, but also allows um, microbes and worms and things to live under that and retains better soil moisture. But there is a bit of what's called nitrogen drawdown 
because of the straw starts to break down, so it's using the nitrogen to help that. So by putting organic compost underneath or biodynamic compost stuff underneath, you overcome that and you help you know, just very gently feed the vines with the, some nutrient as well. Um, then in the, in the rows between, instead of working them up and smashing up the soil, because Australian soils are incredibly sensitive and delicate, um, being so ancient, we, we um, worked on a process of putting in a permanent sward, and that's the sort of work that we've been you know, doing in the hills and the, that they were trialling in Germany. But Prue's direction, being a botanist, was to get away from European grasses like fescue, uh, like um, uh, rye grasses and coxfoots and American grasses like fescues, because in our country they're basically weeds. You know, they're water hungry. They're too invasive. Um, so she, as a you know, as a botanist, she went looking for native grasses that would fulfil that trick, um, for that fill that job. And they're all along the roadside, still growing there. So she collected seeds and started building this up. Got other people interested in native grasses and formed a native grasses resource group. And one guy in the Adelaide Hills was just incredibly clever in inventing things. So he invented a way of seeding these grasses because these grasses are very fluffy. They're not like like not like wheat grains. They're you know really light and fluffy, and so they won't go through a, a normal combine. You actually have to pelletize them first to run them through. So he just came up with all those clever clever ways of harvesting of seeding. And we've got these most beautiful native grasses in our vineyard. But there's something else that comes in that we weren't expecting, and that's it also brings insects back in, which predate on the grubs, the caterpillars that eat the grapevines. So it gave us a double benefit. And, and she got involved then in a project with the CSIRO in looking at native flowering plants that provide you know, the perfect nectar source for these insects. So we would actually get a, a more complex ecosystem within the vineyard of, of these native plants and the native grasses for these, um, these insects to keep them happy and give them a home and, and they can parasitise the, the light brown apple moth and the vine moth and what have you and, and control those, insect, those um, pests that we've got. So you know, our sort of... Our plan, our long-term plan is effectively that the only thing left in the vineyard that's a weed is a vine. Everything <laughs> everything else is native. So it sort of becomes a bit ironical at the end. So let's take it from what you said and circle back a little bit. You have vineyards in the Eden Valley, which at some points is very high in elevation. Yep. And you have now vineyards in the Adelaide, which was cool climate and also there was a lot of problems with fungal issues and mm -hmm. people had to spray a lot that's right and so they there were vines there and then they kind of gave up and then petaluma came in that's and right. then you sort of followed that's right and i would think that experience in germany probably really helped you understand both of those issues mm. as well as what kind of soils exactly do we have which is something they think about all the time that's right and then working with Dr. Richard Smart probably set some of the groundwork for trying to get more emphasis on canopy management, uh, which seems to be very big for Prue, who is the viticulturist with the winery today, where you mm. do the winemaking, mm -hmm. and putting vertical shoot positioning. So what is vertical shoot positioning and how does it help 
uh, in different areas that you use it? Because you don't use it all the time. No. No, that's a, that's a really good question. I guess the connection there is um, that red wine, red wine varieties particularly need some exposure to light. With white varieties like Riesling, you really want dappled light. So you actually want a fluffy canopy that, that covers up the grapes a bit and doesn't allow them to get sunburned. But with red grapes, they're actually more hardy. Curiously, and, and I can only think that our ancestors were very, very far-sighted, very clever in terms of the way they planted vineyards because most of the vineyards were planted east-west, which means in the height of summer when the sun's directly overhead, instead of burning the, the, the grapes, if they were planted north-south, you'd get smashed with the hot afternoon sun. It got, because it goes overhead, you don't get that same sort of sun damage, sunburn. Effectively then, by exposing, by lifting the canopy up more and lifting the canopy down, as in the Scott Henry trellis, um, you can give a lot more exposure to the fruit hanging in the middle of the canopy. So you can have a canopy up to two metres high, as I say, six feet high, um, you know, going both directions, to so the ground and up, up sort of head height. Uh, with the grapes hanging in the middle. And the, the reason that that works is that um, there's some work done by Steve Price at Oregon University on um, the uh, importance of a, of a sunblock compound called quercetin. And the quercetin is a building blocks, is a building block compound for anthocyanin pigments, the colours, flavonoids, you know, the flavours and the, and the tannins, um, phenolics. Um, and so it, it all relates to sun, sunlight. So the, interestingly, that quercetin is, a, is a U, sort of like a UV sunblock for, for fruit. So it occurs in lots of other fruits as well, particularly dark-coloured fruits. That, um, so that quercetin is like us putting sunblock on our skins. And so there's a really nice link there because that sunlight, that extra UV sunlight gives you, it's like a volume control. It actually increases the aroma compounds, increases the, the flavour, the texture, the structure of the wine, as well as the mature tannins on the finish. So w the thing we found at Mount Edelson when we first put in 10 rows of Scott Henry as a trial back in 1989, it also increased the pepperiness of the Shiraz. And that's something we didn't expect. And that's something uh, we haven't really properly been able to explain. So let's talk about one of your single vineyards you have near a church, which would be translated the name of the church as Hill of Grace, where your forefather used to play the organ. You have a vineyard called Hill of Grace. Right. And that vineyard has a few different grape varieties planted in it. Hmm. There's an original block of vines from 1860s, and then there's grape varieties like Riesling, Semion, and even Mataro, which was, I didn't know. <laughs> and Peru has more recently gone through and looked at the old original block of Shiraz vines from the 1860s, the pre-phylloxera vines that survived the root louse problem that affected most of Europe, and she has been propagating those. That's right. So put me in the place and tell me what she's been up to. Right. I, I guess what happened was when we got back from, from Germany and we were looking at, at the vineyards, we realised that there was a proportion of the vines in the in these old, really old vineyards like Mount and Hill of Grace that were suffering from what's known as dead arm disease. So it's a Utipa lata species that um, that effectively it's ubiquitous, but if it infects the the vines, 
grows into the vines and then the, it's a um, toxin from this fungus that causes the, uh, the weakening of the, the arms, the shoots of the vine, and eventually kills the vine. Um, and it may take six, ten years or whatever. And the control mechanism for that's very difficult. It's really you have to prune away until you get rid of this, this fungus. Or you work from a process of improving your hygiene in the vineyard by painting all of your pruning cuts, only making small pruning cuts, only one-year-old wood, rather than pruning off you know, old arms and things like that. And so we, we did that straight away. You know, we banned saws and big snips and went back to just making small cuts and pruning when it was dry rather than when it was raining because that helps to increase it. So all to do with the surface tension of the xylem tissue the water conducting tissue in the plant. So we, we, we did that, but also the, we realised or recognised that there were, there were going to be vines there that could be the, the best vines in that vineyard that were going to get the disease and die and we would lose that genetic material. And having, knowing that these were some of the oldest vines in the world on their own roots, dry grown, um, really a museum of, of varieties out of Europe, particularly the Shiraz and the Hill of Grace, um, we decided that we had to do a program of vine selection, sort of mass selection in the vineyard. Um, so that Prue was the right person to do it, you know, with her botanical background and her studies in Geisenheim. So she, she selected using the Geisenheim um, mass selection principles involved. And my uncle was still alive and running the vineyard at the time, Uncle Lewis, and he did his own selection as well, which was really fascinating to have you know, these two different backgrounds selecting the vines. He knew them by name, you know, he had his favourite vines and so he selected the ones that he thought were the best, she selected hers. And we put them both into a nursery vineyard alongside, we call Post, post Office Box 3, and they gave us then a collection of the, the, you know, the best genetic material out of, out of that vineyard. And it was done over, you know, really over about two years as a, as a primary selection. And we also had a German girl um, come and live with us for nearly a year, uh, Ushi. So one of them was called Ushi Selection. Um, and that was because Prue was having babies at the time and, you know, she couldn't be there all the time doing all the tagging and marking and what have you. But she looked at the uh, time of bud burst, the number of uh, flowering bunches, the time of flowering the number of, you know, sort of bunches per shoot, the time of ripening, you know, the level of virus in the, in the grapes. So you could test all that. And then picking time, we looked at even analyses of the fruit and what have you. So there was an enormous amount of work to do. And then we did, from that nursery then, we, we did a reselection program so we could actually select down to a tighter group of, of best individuals. And the, the reason for that is that if you, if you just select from the vineyard, there could be other factors playing a, a role like soil type changes or whatever. And so we had to put plant on a more neutral site and then plant in five vine replicates so that we could even up all those, those sort of vagaries of, of nature and come up with a, a, a more honest selection. And in fact, with Mount Edelson, we did the same thing at Mount Edelson. We did actually find a vine we called the super vine, and once we planted it in the nursery, it didn't behave like that anymore. So, you know, it was obviously sitting on something really sweet in the ground, and it just loved it, and it just, you know, performed amazingly.
and a lot of the performance is to do with, with um, maturity figures in terms of balance. So at a, at a certain ripeness, if you have a higher acidity and a lower pH, that's more valuable as a, as a grape than one that has a very high pH and low acid, where you have to adjust, um, which you don't really want to do as a winemaker. So um, yeah, having Prue as a, as a, if you like, a partner running vineyards and running vineyards with a focus of, of, the, of the environment, of the ecology, is really a fantastic thing for, for a Henschke and fantastic thing for me because it just gave us that, that, that extra edge, I think, in terms of, of vine health, vine quality. And we're looking long term, you know, this is, we're fifth generation now, our son, the sixth generation, he's starting to work with us. And, um, yeah, we want to see Henschke go for, you know, another six generations. And so by passing the vineyards on to the next generation in better condition than we inherited them from, from our ancestors, it, you know, that's the only thing we can do. It's the best thing we can do for them. So that's what it's about. And your grandfather used to make dry red wine and drink that, but he used to sell fortified wines at Henschke. And what was the change in the production from your grandfather to now? And how would you sort of summarize the numerous different wines that you make? Because there are quite a few in both colors and from different places. Yeah. Um, I think you have to sort of look back historically um, to answer that. And if you think of where they came from in, in sort of more northern Europe, uh, they were growing Riesling, and you think of how Riesling ripens in a cold climate, they would have struggled to get it ripe. You know, if they got it up to 10% alcohol, that was a really good year. <clears throat> and so the, the natural preservative in the wine was the acidity. So when it fermented, it fermented down, you know, probably struggled to ferment. They would have had to keep it near a copper somewhere to keep it warm to ferment it through. Um, it would have had probably some residual sugar. It wouldn't have fermented to dryness and high acidity. So that was sort of the balance of the wine, which is the basis of German wines that sort of sweeter, higher acid and lower alcohol. And where, when you brought varieties to Australia, and we had, we had a, a warmer climate in South Australia, they ripened up easily. So you ended up with potential high, higher alcohol, naturally, you know, sort of 10, 11, 12%, whatever. Um, lower acidity, when the, the juice was fermented, it fermented easily because it was warmer cli climate and fermented to dryness. So the balance was higher alcohol, lower acid, and dry wine, no sugar. Um, and so that became the formula. And whether it's red wine or sweet wine, it sort of follows the same thing. So our wines are really well suited as table wines for food. And you can imagine when the settlers first arrived, they were growing their grapes, making these wines, that the climate dictated the style of wine they were making. So it was climate driven. And it matched their style of food because from Silesian German, Germany, they were making, you know, sort of smoked meats and, and zar gherkins, you know, pickled gherkins, dill, cucumbers, different hand kaiser, you know, hand, hand, cheese, hand squashed cheeses, you know, it's from the quark sort of style, different breads. And, you know, there's a, uh, you know, we called them smoked, the smoked sausages, we called them wusht, which is like versed, but, you know, the di Silesian dialect. And so the, all these beautiful wushs were, were made and sold and, and eaten and stuff. And it was, just went beautifully with those dry wines. So you can understand why generation after generation, the, the families drank the wines that suited their, their sort of lifestyle. 
um, but the wines they were selling suited the market they were selling to. And the market changed dramatically towards the turn of the century because there was more wine being exported to the UK. And the table wines weren't stable enough in barrel, you know, hogsheads shipped across the equator to the UK. These table wines oxidised and, you know, lost their freshness. And often the sailors would probably help themselves anyway and you know, do more damage. So by fortifying the wines, by adding spirit to these fermenting wines and making sweet alcoholic um, sherries and inverted commas and ports and those sorts of things, they became a huge market for the, for the UK particularly, um, you know, the, the fatherland for the English settlers. And my grandfather, you know, like everybody else, was making these fortified wines to suit the, that export market. Um, he wasn't selling them there directly, but through other people. And so, you know, there was that diversity of, of wine styles and wine fashions. And sure, we're making these hocks, you know, sort of named after Hockheim in Germany and clarets named after you know, part of France or whatever, but they were made from Shiraz and Riesling and what have you. And it wasn't really until a new wine and food culture happened in Australia and that was after the Second World War when a lot of the Southern Europeans settled, a lot of Greeks and Italians settled in Australia, that we had an introduction of, of a different food style and a demand for wine to drink with that food style. So with this, you know, the, the pastas and all those sorts of things, you know, the Italians want, families wanted to have red wine on the table to drink with that. Um, and a great example is Beppi's restaurant in Sydney, Beppi Palese, has celebrated 50 years of, of his restaurant. He still has empty bottles of my father's 50s wines in his, you know, in his cellar um, that, that he'd you know, drunk from those really early days. And, um, and it's pretty amazing to celebrate you know, those, those a whole 50 years of, of a wine being sold in a one restaurant just in Sydney and you know, what a great celebration that is for the culture and the success of it. So that wine and food culture really changed the landscape in, in Australia because effectively Australia, most of Australia settled by the English and it was meat and three veg, you know, pretty boring food and, and they, you know, they weren't so much wine drinkers. Um, if they drank wine, I think the high society of English would have drunk imported wines rather than Australian wines. So, yeah, my father was one of the first, Cyril Hensky was one of the early, I guess the early pioneers of single vineyard table wines. And the, 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 our Riesling, the, the, which is now started in the early 50s, Mount Edelson in 1952, Hiller Grace in 1958. And so these, Mount Edelson particularly, as far as we know, is the oldest single vineyard wine made in Australia, as, as a consecutively made. And so now we've made 60 consecutive vintages of it. So that's, that really you know, sets a, a lovely story about the history of, uh, of Australian wine because most people think Australia's a new world, it happened in the last 10 minutes, and here we are with, you know, with 500 million year old soils, with vines that are 150 years old, a six generation family um, making wines of one, from one particular vineyard for 60, for 60 years. So, you know, there is a lot of history in Australia, Australia and a lot of character. And at one point, you did a 50-year tasting of your family's wines, and you sort of remarked, well, it seems like I'm closer to the wines that are further away from me, just in terms of taste, but maybe in what I'm doing. And wh what did you mean by that, in terms of technique? 
Yeah. Um, we opened up 50 vintages of Hiller Grace early in the year and had a n- number of wine writers, including a number from around the world, who came along for the tasting. And it was a very special tasting because some of the vintages we only had one bottle of. Um, but the the oldest wine, the 1958 Hiller Grace, um, we we tasted it right through. And when I got to the, 19, the 2008, I realised we had bookends. You know, they were so similar in style. Um, the 58 was had some lovely ripeness about it, still beautiful fruit, even though it had been sitting under this cork for, for 50 years. And and showed, showed a, a style of wine more like what we're making today. Because through the, the 70s and 80s, the styles change, you know, fashions change. So when you line them up, those 50 vintages, you do actually see the changes in fashion, the changes in lifestyle, the changes in all sorts of cultural things that reflect in these, these 50 different wines. And it made me think about what happened before they, they started making the 58 Hiller Grace and the 52 Mount Edelston. And they really came off of an era of fortified winemaking. And if you think about how you make fortifieds, to, you need to add alcohol. You need to buy the alcohol. That costs money. So if you can get the grapes as ripe as possible before you add the alcohol, you have to spend less money on the alcohol. And that's really what they were used to doing, picking ripe, then fortifying and selling it that way. So when they started making the table wines, they were actually used to picking the fruit mature and they had these lovely sort of structural, intense wines that have lasted in the bottle for 50 years. And you wouldn't have believed it, would you? <laughs> so what other wines do you make? You mentioned the Hill of Grace, the Julius Riesling, the Mount Edelstone. What else is out there? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, the major red grape varieties in South Australia were Shiraz, Grenache and Mataro, um, often called Mavet. Shiraz came from the Hermitage region, so it was, a, it was a mispronunciation or misspelling of Syrah, and so it's really become Australia's variety because nobody else makes Shiraz like, I guess, like Australia does. The Grenache and Mavet probably came from Spain to Australia, so they would have been Ganache and Mataro. And they've settled, settled in well, and I think in the last, probably in the last decade or so, last, last couple of decades, Grenache and Mataro are starting to come back as, as being important varieties as well to make red wine from. So they're the early varieties, and the early white varieties were, were Riesling and curiously Simeon, and I don't know why this Bordeaux variety Simeon came to Australia so early, but there are, you know, there are hundred-year-old vines of Simeon around the place. Um, but other, a lot of other grape varieties, like the Muscat varieties, um, uh, Muscata Petit Grand Blanc from Frontian sort of area, and a lot of Spanish varieties, Pedro Ximenez and all those sorts of things. So we had, had a whole motley bunch of, of white grape varieties, probably the more traditional varieties that came. But Riesling obviously came across because of the, the German settlement, settlement of South Australia. Um, and it sort of fitted the picture quite well. And it suited us, and it suited the high country. So that mountain range that I mentioned earlier that runs north-south, which is a barrier to the weather that comes from the, the prevailing winds from the southwest, has within it, down the bottom end, at the Adelaide Hills. If you go up another sort of 50 kilometres or so, you get into Eden Valley, 
If you go up another 100 kilometres or so further north, you get to Clare Valley. So those three regions are all in the same mountain range and they're all above 400 metres in altitude. Um, and they all get what we call a, a continental, more continental climate because once you're up in the higher in altitude, you tend to get colder nights during the summertime with the warm days. So you get that continentality which holds the acidity high and the purity of the fruit. Um, but since then, we've also planted lots of other varieties. My father was, was interested in, in trialling different varieties, so he, he planted uh, um, a bunch of different things, including Cabernet Sauvignon, and then Pru and I have added to it Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and, and um, Merlot and, and um, Cabernet Franc and things like that as well. So there's a sort of nice diversity of varieties that make up our portfolio, and people... Rather, sometimes rather concerned that we're making so many wines. But I look at it this way. Instead of just having one wine and, and getting bored to tears with making that one wine, by having all these other varieties, you've actually got different challenges, new challenges that keep you, your mind active in terms of research and development. And you're all the time trying to look at, at something different. And these are all made in small lots so we can manage it easily whether it's one big lot or whether it's lots of small lots, we can, we can do the same thing. So it's, it's for us, it's about stimulation of ideas and, and um, you know, in, in improving what we're doing all the time. Just, you know, the, our, our philosophies would be better rather than bigger. So we're you know, all the time looking and making it better in the vineyards and better out in the winery. And you, in some bottlings, blend <coughs> Shiraz with Cabernet Sauvignon, which mm. isn't everybody who does that. <laughs> Uh, what led you to that decision and, and why? Right. That's um, actually a very old Australian um, technique. And it came, came about because Cabernet was very rare in those early days. So by blending Cabernet with a little bit of Shiraz, they could call it you know, Shiraz Cabernet, or some people called it Cabernet Shiraz, um, and it gave them, gave them that Cabernet word on the label that was a trendy, a trendy new variety. But hard to imagine now. Yeah, exactly. that it would be a trend. You know, I mean, just from this market. Um, true, but interestingly, it it does something else. And it, and when we blended some cabernet into our, our Cainton um, red wine, the Cainton Euphonium, in the old days, that was actually originally my father's dry red wine back in the fifties. Um, it was just from you know different growers and things until we planted some more Shiraz at Eden Valley, and then in the 80s, after it changed its name a few times and ended up being called Cainton Estate, um, Prue and I were looking at, at trying to make this wine more fruit friendly and, and looking at, at more of a savoury style of Shiraz. And we blended some Cabernet in and we realised that the Cabernet actually gives a lovely savouriness to the wine. It actually adds in those fine grain tannins. It gives it a, a, a different texture um, brings in some of the cassis fruits of the of the cabernet, um, some violety sort of aromas, and it changes the style and and actually makes it not a better wine, but it makes it a different, you know, really lovely food wine. And um, it, it sort of fits that pattern of you know wine and food, but it also just happens to fit that pattern of of that sort of com what became common in Australia of adding cabernet to some shiraz to you know to make, sell it better. Because over time, Shiraz became the workhorse variety and Cabernet Sauvignon became the, 
the exclusive variety, you know, the, the variety that everybody wanted to buy. So we had, when I was a young guy back in the 80s and, and after my father had passed away and I was making, making these wines, um, and I had a journalist came, who came to the winery one day and he wanted to taste some of the wines that I'd, that I'd made and so we had a barrel tasting and eventually we got around to a sample of the 1980 Grace. And he said to me, Stephen, this is the most beautiful Cabernet I've ever seen. And I didn't have the heart to tell him it was Shiraz. <laughs> I've definitely made that mistake before myself. <laughs> um, so, and it was, you know, because people expected a great wine to be made from Cabernet, not, not from Shiraz. It was that funny time of the market. Something else that may have been a funny time for you was finding a good oak source. How did you uh, work with that challenge to develop something to age your wines in? Mm. Yeah, my, I, really my father used m more larger format oak, which was more common back in, in, the, in his time. And um, as we introduced more and more smaller oak, what happened was that we, you know, the particularly American oak, because American oak was really popular in Australia back back in that time. And I'm, I don't really know why. I need I actually need to ask um, a question myself sometime about that to try to get a proper answer, but it's either to do with the cost or just convenience, practicality, whatever. But you look at a lot of those Australian dry red wines from the 50s and 60s, and they were predominantly American oak. Penfolds, oak. I think, yeah. early on. Yeah. They're a good example. Um, but what concerned me about the uh, the oak was that it seemed to me too young and, and too severe. There were sort of shellacky flavours. It wasn't properly seasoned. You could see the the ends of the barrels warp. So I went and talked to our cooper, Peter John, who had taken over from his father Warren, who had taken from his over from his grandfather um, AP. And my grandfather used to buy barrels from his grandfather. My father bought barrels from his father. So, you know, we had this close connection. And I, Peter and I sat down together, made a 10-year plan for, for oak to get better quality oak. And that was really to bring in better seasoned oak, so seasoned longer uh, under snow in the Appalachian Mountains over near Pittsburgh, and to season longer in the Barossa, so at, at Peter's yard, he, and we stacked up the oak, the staves, timbers, and he would he would watch it for me until he believed it was ready. So we would, you know, we'd bring in container loads and season it for three years, four years, five years to get the best quality oak. And we had the the oldest seasoned oak in in the Barossa sitting in Peter's yard to you know get the most mature flavours. And we're looking for more northern oak, so we're trying to get the finer grained oak as well and it it was a success because it, it gave us oak that was much more subtle it you know it didn't look like french oak but it was more subtle it had vanilla flavors but it it was more more sort of subtle spices didn't have those bourbony characters that you quite often get when you put white wine into american oak and it didn't have any of those as those astringent characters and one thing it did give it gave us sweetness on the palate so when you tasted, um, so Hiller Grace in different oak types from different forests in France and, and from America, um, the American oak had, had that sweetness of fruit and, and sweetness on the palate that you didn't see in the others. The French oaks tend to dry the wine more. 
Um, and it was really amazing. So as a component in the blend, it was good. It's a, it's a bit like cooking, you know, it's a bit like looking the seasonings that work together well without dominating the, the food. This is all about not dominating wine, but, but building the structure in the wine. You and Prue, somewhat unique. It's not every couple that I know where one does viticulture and the other does the winemaking. A lot of times it's mm. two brothers who do that. That's or right. maybe the wife does sales or marketing or sees to the office. Here you have someone who's highly accomplished on her own merits on, over her own career working the vines, and she's also your wife. Do you ever disagree? Does she ever, you know, want to plant more Cabernet than you want to vinify? And then you guys fight and she doesn't pass you the potatoes at the dinner table? Or, uh, you know, <laughs> how, how do you work out your own conversations about the winery? I'm very lucky. She's an absolute sweetheart. She always says, yes, darling, you're perfectly right. No, it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Now that she doesn't happen to be here and can't slap you. Yeah, very Can't far defend away. herself. Um, well, as it turns out, sometimes we do have you know, have little disagreements and things, but I, I think you know uh, over a period of time you, you live and you live it and you breathe it, you know, and, and and you have pillow talk about all sorts of subjects, and and if it's work, that's bad luck, but you know sometimes it can be, and it's about discussing it through, and and I think you know both having known each other for so long from university times we you know we understand each other well and we both have the same i think we both have the same drive for for what we're doing she has a fantastic palette um and so i, I trust her palette and it it's it's good because you know, it's really important because that that connection between the two i mean what really fundamentally the quality of the wine and in, in the bottle of henschke is about what comes from the vineyard I have very little to do with it. I'm just a caretaker to make sure it goes through its fermentation and its oak ageing and it ends up in a bottle looking beautiful. And quite often at vintage time she'll say to me, now don't muck it up. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I am very lucky because I've, you know, we've turned out to be the perfect partnership and in terms of her environmental beliefs but also her passion for getting you know, the soil health there, the vine health there. So we can practice still dry-grown viticulture and have good, healthy vines that will keep living longer um, because, you know, it looks like as global warming comes along, we're going to get drier, and, and so drought-proofing is very important for us. Have you found tasteable results with the biodynamic conversion? At the end of the day, can you say, boy, these are different than what we used to make? Um, I, I don't think it's as conclusive as that. Um, I'd love to say yes, but I, I think... What drives the, the vintage variation more is the, is the climate. Um, but what I do believe is happening is that because we've, we've got much healthier soils now, the vines are coping a lot better, and so they're managing the stresses of dry seasons and wet seasons better. And so we're actually getting better quality fruit and probably you know, less disease fruit as well, but certainly better quality fruit. And I think that better quality fruit is translating into better wines. But I can't, you know, can't categor categorically say that because we don't have the measurables to put one style alongside the other. You know, we've, we've sort of gone wholesale towards biodynamic because we know it's the right thing to do. Um, and even if it was the wrong thing to do, it's not doing the vineyard any harm even if it's just a religion, it's not doing the vineyard any harm because it's, it's helping you know, the health of the vineyard. But we know it's more than that. You know, we know it's to do with, with microbiology. You know, it's to do with 
that subtle health in the vineyard where the bugs you know do something positive in terms of of, of soil health and what about those screw caps yeah I mean, a lot of people wouldn't bottle their top reds under screw caps, the ones that are meant to age for a long time. You do? Why the choice? What does it mean for you? Um, I think as a winemaker, I was lucky. We, Having studied in Germany, all the, the wines made at Geisenheim, the research wines, were all bottled under screw cap. That's back in the, the mid-70s. And the reason they did that was because by bottling under cork, it made all those experiments useless because the corks were just too variable. So bottling under screw cap, you had got consistency and you, you knew that you could see the differences between the different clones, the different trials, different vintages and what have you. So Becker really imparted that well into us. There, was also, there were also an, a few wineries back in the 70s and one of them was Yolumba who were doing trials with screw caps. And now when you do a museum tasting of those old Yolumba um, pusies and cart doors, you're stunned at how glorious those wines look under screw cap and how horrible those wines look under cork. But, you know, back when we started doing it back in the, um, I guess, the mid-90s, you know, we'd left it a long time and, and year after year bottling the Riesling under a cork and then you look at it and you just see the wine being destroyed by this this woody flavour of the cork and often you know, the TCA and all those sort of issues and then the crumbling and random oxidation, all those sort of problems. And we were just hanging out for something better to come along. And it, it ultimately did. You know, we, we started bottling Riesling under the, the old-fashioned screw cap and then the new Stilvan, the BVS finished Stilvan came out in with the 2000 vintage. And that was really the answer to our prayers because it gave us a bottle that you could fill to the proper or correct height and to allow a 30 millimetre vacuity with the screw cap on top. And so you didn't get any oxidation under the screw cap. And it's kept those wines in beautiful, pristine condition over years. So we can go back now to 1996 with the Rieslings that we started bottling under screw cap. Now, I actually did a trial at the same time with red wine under screw cap from 95 with our Caton. And I was, I've been amazed at how well those wines have aged. And one example, um, somebody made a comment when we bottled a uh, Henry Seven Shiraz, Grenache, Viognier, actually Shiraz and Viognier co-fermented, then some Grenache blended in. We bottled that with 20% screw cap and 80% cork because I didn't really know how it was going to go in the marketplace. And I sent samples out to all the journalists and one journalist very acutely pointed out to me the fact that under the screw cap he could see Shiraz Grenache Viognier, but under the cork he could only see red wine. And I thought it was a beautiful summary of what we were trying to achieve. We were trying to achieve something that showed you know, the, the flavours of the varieties in there that would age over time. Um, there's been a lot of work done on the influence of screw cap particularly by the Australian Wine Research Institute and it's easy to look up on their website and look at all that. But red wine and white wine do both age, but they age more slowly and they age more like they're in a large format bottle. So if you were going to open up a Magnum or a Double Magnum or Imperial or something or other, that's really how the, the red wine under, or even white wine under screw cap ages. So it keeps the fruit, but, but also allows secondary ageing characters to develop as well. 
And the the fear that most people have got that that screw cap becomes reductive, you know, wine becomes reductive under screw cap. We haven't seen, in fact, um, uh, another Australian journalist, James Halliday, and I were involved in the Great Australian Shiraz Challenge tastings a number of years or judgings, and um, we got to a stage where one year we were seeing more sulphide, you know, a lot a lot of reds now under screw cap. But we're seeing just this slightly more red wine showing sulphide than than others in the tasting, and and I said to James, because well, somebody said, well maybe it's because of screw cap, and I said to James, why don't we keep a record of what wines are showing sulphide and and assess whether they're under screw cap or under cork. So Viv, the the steward, kept all the records of when we picked up sulphide, and afterwards we analysed the results and it was fifty fifty, which meant the sulphide came from the winemaking and not from the closure. Um, so that was quite enlightening, and um, it validated you know, a lot of our feeling as winemakers. So screw cap is is probably best described as being like the best possible cork. You know, it seals the bottle like like a cork is supposed to do. It's supposed to keep the wine and seal it perfectly. Um, but sadly, most wines, most corks don't achieve that. Um, so you know, we're I guess as a winemaker, I'm from the the direction of zero cork taint policy you know we should we should ban you know cork taint out of the out of the wine industry um but also i've got a dilemma because i'm a traditional winemaker i've got you know five generations of winemaking we still use traditional techniques of making a wine and open submerged cap concrete fermenters we use you know oak barrels and all those sorts of things so you know you could quite fairly say to me well you know why don't you then use corks but i think you get to a point where you can't sleep at night as a winemaker, knowing, particularly when I'm selling a wine like Hilla Grace, it's $500, $600 a bottle, knowingly selling it, knowing that up to 10% of that wine can be faulty. And that's what really drove me to the point of saying, well, I've got to find a better closure than, than cork because I've got these people ringing me up in the middle of the night from America and from England saying, oh, my night's just been ruined. I opened up a Hilla Grace and it's corked and what have you and crying over the phone and you know it's two o'clock in the morning the you know there the, there was a there was a reason you know and, the, and that reason is to give the consumer a better wine um, but since then a, another closure has come along which is the glass cork and we we were in germany at the stuttgart in davides in back in 2004 when it was launched we saw this that looked like a diamond on the top of the bottle and I dug through in the ribs and said, you know, we're going to put Hill of Grace under this. Doesn't this look beautiful? Um, so we got the first bottles out to Australia in the closures um, and set up a trial, used a, and decided to use a third party, the Australian Wine Research Institute, to do the due diligence on that closure so that we could determine whether that was going to be a long-term viable closure for, for our top quality wines. And we have now over five years of data and we can predict, if you like, a, a graph of how that wine's going to age out over 20 years. And it looks fantastic. It's very much like screw cap. It's very much like a large format bottle in the way it, it behaves. And that's because, you know, the surface area of the, of the closures are the same. And it's a, it's a gorgeous looking closure and it, and it suits those markets where they don't understand screw cap. And certainly the South, uh, Southern, uh, Southeast Asian markets some parts of Europe and what have you, and even some parts of America where people don't understand screw caps, that 
you know, they, they see it, but they think it's cheap and nasty. They don't realize it's actually a better closure. Um, that's where that glass cork is great because it still has that traditional feel and it's the same price as an expensive cork. So it's, and, uh, and hundred percent reliable. So why, why wouldn't you use it? <laughs> so yeah, they're, they're the sorts of, I think sometimes, you know, inventions, innovations are important, even in traditional winemaking. And what about the next generation? Your son has been doing some stages at different wineries around the world. Mm. What's he like and what's he been up to? He's um, a, a really great guy. He's he studied winemaking at Adelaide University. Um, he and he's very keen to to continue on the family business. And we don't know how many that we've got. Three children: a daughter and and and, and another son, Andreas. So Johan, Justine, and Andreas are the three kids. We don't know whether they're all going to come into it or or, or not. But Johan certainly wants to carry it on. Um, he's just completed a, a two-year international master's in oenology and viticulture based in Montpellier um, and has come back um, and is work, has been working with us since um, January this year. So I, you know, the, the sixth generation is there and quite happy to help for the time being, his mother and his father, which is pretty, um, uh, you know, sort of brings tears to your eyes knowing that, that you've got another generation there wanting to to continue on and it's rather nice you know, being able to say you know some when you one of your workmen comes to work in the morning says good day dad uh, sort of a rather nice thing for for a father when he's on time i guess yeah when the he's other on. time <laughs> trying to get over Where it, the yeah. Hell are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he's he's working from the direction of his mother's field so he's working from the, vitic the vineyards at the moment so he's been helping Peru in the viticulture side the viticulture research side working at Lenswood, which is really our toughest challenging vineyard because of the higher altitude, the colder climate, the wetter seasons, um, and the high potential disease. And so it's a great place to start and for him to look at where the best components of our fruit are so we can value add that fruit um, you know, more and more over time. Um, but ultimately he'll come back into to, you know, taking over from us, and us or me or, you know, Probably um, I'll go out fishing and, and Pru will stay on helping in the vineyards and <laughs> Johan, will, Johan will take over the winemaking. Again, Pru not here <laughs> to slap you. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but has the market received your wines differently over your tenure? That's interesting. I, I think I think there's always a, you know, a, there's a generational change and I think there's, there's a, a period where people seem to have a concern that the wines aren't the same as they used to be or or that you know the new the new generation is going to change it um, and i think that's what what happened when i took over from my father you know i kept on getting these these comments from some of his old cronies who used to buy his wine or Stephen, you now you'll never make wines as good as your father did and I hope you well, took those guys off the distribution uh, list jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> not very nice you know? but um you know you have to take those things on the chin and and um it if anything it gives you a it gives you that you know that that extra spurt to do a better job than you would have done um and so you know Prue and i you know when we first took over and, and carried on the business. You know, we made our, our sort of 10-year plan of where we wanted to be and, um, and you know, certainly technology has changed dramatically. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, our generation was a technology generation. 
well, not quite what your technology is, you know, in terms of computer technology, but it certainly was in terms of winemaking. And we could do, instead of one analysis, we could do a dozen different analyses on the, on the grapes and on the wine to make sure that the wine was better quality when it got to the bottle. But it's, you know, every generation has a different way of looking at things and, and fashions change. So, you know, most people would have thought that Hensky would have driven the, the Shiraz style quite differently to where we were and, and you know, maybe not introduce so many different grape varieties and what have you. But, you know, like I said earlier, it's about learning and it's about, um, about stimulation. I think it's nice to look back, um, particularly when we did that 50-year tasting, it's nice to look back to, through the vintages that we made and the vintages that my father made. And I think what really shows up that really amazed me the most was that, that the, in the, those very good vintages, and those very good vintages were vintages like, like 59 and 62 and 72 and 78 and 86 and, and 90 and what have you. Those vintages that were really great vintages, doesn't matter how rustic the winemaking was, they stood out as being great wines. And I think that's really what, you know, it, it, what it's all about. That was a vineyard talking. And even if my father didn't have the technology and the science behind him, in those great vintages, he still made great wines. And now that we've got the technologies and science there, I'm hoping that I can so, still say that in the great vintages, we're making great wines as well. And in between time, we're possibly making better wines. And he had the opportunity to because we've got that, that techno technology to support us. Stephen Henschke, he's looking back and forward at Henschke Family Winery in Australia. Thank you, sir. Pleasure. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.